this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Farm Tank. It's just me, Jordan Van Trump, on here today. And today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Brett Sitzman. Brett has worked in, uh, with just about all the big dogs throughout, throughout ag in his career after uh, graduating from Iowa State University in 2002. Brett started his career with Farmers Co-op as a sales agronomist. Since then, he's worked with uh, Floyd, Grain Valley, Monsanto, the Climate Corporation, Bear, and the Weather Company. It's also worth noting, Brett has also worked on a farm himself for over 15 years in Lamar's, Iowa, and now Brett is currently the head of Ecosystem and Grain at Solenthatech. With that, I'd like to welcome uh, Brett to the show. Well, thanks, Jordan. I'm beyond humbled uh, to be here. I've uh, really admired the Van Trump organization, so this is a a cool opportunity. Looking forward to it. Good deal. I appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day to do it. I guess let's uh, let's just start off the podcast um, with you telling our listeners a brief bit about your background. I guess where you grew up, high school. I mentioned you went to Iowa State. Maybe your first real job. We can go from there. No, it sounds good. Um, yeah, you gave a nice overview there. You know, I think my story is pretty vanilla, right? I uh, grew up on a farm in northwest Iowa. I went to a uh, small Catholic high school there in Lamar's, the ice cream capital of the world there, at home of Wells Blue Bunny, and uh, graduated with a class of about 42. And, um, you know, really just kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere, right? We were probably 15 miles from uh, Lamar's and 12 miles from Kingsley. So we were, we were kind of out there. And um, so pretty, pretty sheltered life. I, uh, once I finished up at, graduated from high school, went to Iowa State University and studied agronomy there and um, graduated in 2002. You know, those, those were interesting times. At that time, there was a lot of people in agriculture, right? There was still a lot of us coming off the farm, looking for additional income, you know, hoping to farm someday. And um, so graduating with that agronomy degree, I was happy to land a job in retail as a sales agronomist. And, uh, yeah, at the time, that was called uh, Farmer's Co-op Company. It was a four-location business in Akronones in Lamar's. Uh, since then, CVA has acquired that, so it's part of that uh, group there out in Nebraska. But um, So as a sales agronomist there, that led to an opportunity I never expected to uh, or desired, to be honest with you, <laughs> to uh, merchandise grain and, and manage a, a grain business. We had a unique position. We had a shuttle loading facility serviced by four rail lines, right? So a relatively small grain company, but um, opportunity to trade a lot of different markets. And um, so it's something I kind of glanced over my time as a sales agronomist. Um, this is, you know, technology. Seed technology was just hitting the marketplace. Uh, Monsanto was just dominating in a big way, right? They were doing new things with breeding and germplasm and traits. And so, you know, being a young young person looking to, to make their mark in uh, retail, it was easy to adopt those seed brands and have a lot of success. Even when I was merchandising, I was still selling uh, seed, decalb seed, because I enjoyed it so much. And um, so that led to my next opportunity with uh, Monsanto. I was an agronomist with Monsanto in a three-county geography up in northwest Iowa and then uh, a DSM, and uh, you know, you're right, Jordan. This whole time I was farming a little bit on the side, too, like a lot of us do. I had uh, the opportunity. My story's a little unique. I uh, had a neighbor and really a good friend, uh, Cherry Cliff. Uh, she's more like a mother or a grandmother to me, and she gave me the opportunity to 
farm some when I got out of school, but it was, you know, like like a lot of us, it was not enough to make a full-time living. So that gave me the opportunity to do all these other jobs. And um, I got married uh, here eight years ago, started having kids. Um, you know, at that point, something kind of had to give, right? It was either uh, sit around on the farm and wait for death or retirement <laughs> or, uh, you know, pursue some other opportunities. So that's when I moved down here to St. Louis took a corporate job with uh, Climate Corp and uh, then Bayer and, and IBM. We can get into more of that as we go, I guess. But, I, you know, really this digital space has always been intriguing to me. Um, I think I, you know, really came into agriculture at a fun time. There's been just huge changes over the past 20 years, and I've had a front row seat for most of them, and I, I think the rate of change is only going to accelerate from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's. Uh, I want to jump back a little bit about you on the farm. Did you? So did you get out of school and own the farm, or rent the ground and farm, or? Well, that's a that's a good question. So um, you know, Cherry, uh, like I said, she was more like a, a grandmother to me. Even my roommates in college would wait for her packages to, to show up once a month because they knew they were full of cookies and goodies and stuff like that. So. Can't emphasize enough, you know, um, how good she was to me and the opportunity that she gave me. But, yeah, I, so I was able to move back. <clears throat> I was able to rent her acres. And, uh, you know, I utilized the farm equipment of the family operation I was a part of, right? It was – I'll call it unique, but it's probably not, Jordan. This is – a lot of people listening can probably relate, right? So we had um, – my grandfather had um, – really started three of the boys farming, right, which is uh, no small accomplishment. That takes a lot. And I think, you know, just like a lot of farm operations, though, that it's it's very capital intensive. There's limited resources, you know. So I, I think those three boys made a good living doing it and those things. And, and like I said, that's no small accomplishment for my grandfather. But it's one of these situations where my grandpa was still buying equipment when he was 91 years old, <laughs> you know, so never really letting go of the reins of the operation. And, um, you know, so, but it was nice. I was able to leverage some of those assets. It just didn't allow much room for growth either. Right. Um, <laughs> really you had, you know, four key stakeholders on the, in the operation, you know, and there's a, a couple cousins that uh, wanted to farm and, in those things too. So it was, again, uh, there's opportunity there if you wait around for it. Um, you know, there's a meme the other day, Jordan, and it's only funny because it's partially true. I think it's a, a, a cover of one of the farming magazines and over top of it. So there's like a, an older, two older gentlemen on the, on the cover, right? Standing on the stairs of a combine and the, the guy that's about 90s looking down at the guy that's 70 saying, you know, why is he doing this wrong? You know, and the guy, and that's just a little thought balloon. And the guy that's 70 is saying, when is he going to die? <laughs> right? So not that, not that we wish death in our family or any of those things, but I think farming is a unique business that way, right? Not many operate mm-hmm. like that, not like these uh, corporations that I've worked for in the meantime in other businesses. So, you know, like I said, I think, um, you know, having, getting married was a big change for me. It is for all of us. Having kids was, a, was just a massive change and, and one of the best things ever. And that, you know, at that point, I really started rethinking, how do I want to spend all my time, right? I was, mm-hmm. you know, farming, farming uh, you know, up to 400 acres at one time, but I was doing work on, you know, um, 2,500, right? And then I yep. was... Uh, doing the day job to boot, it didn't leave much time for, you know, the wife and, and kids. And, um, you know, I think agriculture is more than turning a steering wheel, too. I think uh, what I've been able to do here in recent years, um, you know, has helped me grow as much as uh, staying on the farm ever could have. Mm-hmm. So you decided to exit due to uh, just more time with the family. That's what it is. Yeah, it's more time with the family, and I just – I always needed to be more involved, right? Uh, so even when I was in the field with Monsanto, you know, this digital space was always intriguing to me. There was early efforts long before Climate Corporation uh, 
you know, around uh, prescriptions and recommendations and digital platforms, and I always had to to find a way to be a part of those, right? And um, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, just being a being a part of it, seeing what's behind the scenes was more important to me than you know just being a part of the operation. Mhm. Yeah, that makes sense a lot. Um, so did you grow? So did so your grandpa? So you grew up on the farm that your grandpa owned. Yeah, that's right. So he, um, you know, he came back, um, you know, he was a a World War uh, veteran. You know, he came from a big family. Uh, We're Catholic, right? So we have a lot of of big families, and and those families had big families to boot. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he he poured a lot of time into farming. And like I said, that's no small accomplishment. It's hard to get one, one kid started farming, right? let alone mm-hmm. three and, and have them, you know, be able to keep some of their family around to boot. So, um, yeah. you know, uh, it's a lot of respect for all the effort he put in to, to build that thing up, no doubt. Uh-huh. So, yeah, me and my dad were talking about this the other day, and I think you can relate and maybe give some input on it as well. But So my dad's the first, first generation on the farm. My grandpa didn't farm any. Uh, grew up in a farming community I guess but he never farmed but um we were just talking about I guess how how hard would it have been for you um when you were younger say college to come up or I don't know if you did or didn't but to go up to your grandpa with a new idea um on how you wanted to change the farm or do something different about the farm was that ever a, you know I, that ever a thought that crossed your mind or <laughs> You know, I uh, it's probably just out of kind of stupidity, right? But I've always been bold enough to to try things like that. And um, but you know, you would you just run into a wall. You know, I think you lose. Like I said, uh, I, I don't want to take away from what he what he did and what he created, but I just think you lose some of that capacity, right? As you get up into mm-hmm. your your eighties and you know even into ninety, you know. So I if you'd approach him with a an idea, you know, one, he, he was hard of hearing. He never could hear well. <laughs> so that was, that was always a, a challenge in, in communicating. But, you know, his mind was still wrapped around, you know, like he, he'd come to him with a, a new idea around a planter or some other technology or seed, and he was thinking we needed a new rotary hoe, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's just kind of a, a piece of equipment you haven't used on the farm for a long time. And and to be fair, you know, um, like with my dad, too, he came back. So he, he's a little bit different. He kind of did things in reverse order. He went, he was the oldest in the family. He went off to uh, college, and uh, he was one of the only, I think the only boy to actually get a degree. And he, uh, you know, worked in uh, banks, kind of a corporate situation with computer technologies at the time. So he actually came back to the farm last, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so he was, oh, I'm, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but he was probably in his 30s when he came back to the farm. And I think in his mind, he was always playing catch-up, right? Yeah. He felt like he was behind in what he contributed. So I think he had a hard time, you know, trying to support me as well because he still felt like he was getting his own start, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So here he is, he's mm-hmm. sixty five years old, my grandpa's ninety, right? And he's yeah. still trying to prove himself to to uh so it's interesting. I don't I'm sure the story's a little bit unique, but I think this is pretty common in agriculture, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it's extremely common. I mean, we deal with it all the time when there's guys older than my dad and um, it would be the grandpa on the farm, and he passes away. And I mean, it's not unexpectedly because I mean he's obviously getting old, but it was unex- an unexpected death at the time, and everything's left to the fifty to seventy-year-old uh, son, and he's not sure what to do because he's never had to make any decisions or anything like that. And I guess the reason it came up is my grandpa came in town. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and we don't see him too often. He lives down in Florida, but uh, we were just talking about some of those issues we were just talking about, and we're like, how big of a technological difference is it between, like, us and your grandpa? 
Like, does that guy have any, like, does he have any idea what's going on? Like, but I think that's with everybody, not even just in ag. Like, he couldn't figure out how to answer his phone and all this and all that, and we were just going about it like my dad knows way much more what's going on than my grandpa, and then on the technology side, I know way much more than my dad. So, I mean, I think a lot of people deal with that issue, but I guess what I'm wanting, do you have any insight on how we can better bridge that gap and help uh, or figure out a way to let younger people make decisions on the farm or somewhat decisions? Because, I mean, I think it's a way, like, some people allow them to make decisions, but if it's the wrong decision or somehow they get smoked, I think that's, that's they draw the line and you're not making any decisions anymore. Yeah, that's right. It's hard to turn over the reins. So it's interesting you bring that up. It's that's something I wake up thinking about every every day. Um, is you know what opportunities can we create in agriculture? I think uh, agriculture is a really special place still, where you can do meaningful work and feel accomplished and have a good life and provide well for your family. And I. I think the future of agriculture doesn't need to be just more vertical integration to find efficiencies. And I think technology is going to change this, and you can see it now. Um, see, here, here's an example. I was on uh, at InfoAg here in St. Louis just this year. I was on a panel representing Salimtech and our solution, but um, somebody from Rantizo gave a presentation. And I'll be honest, I've always been skeptical on the drone thing. I think they're cool. I've owned one. I got one as soon as I can or I could and uh, try to justify it, you know, with with every uh, bone in my body that purchased as, as something that was a benefit to the farm. But you see what, like, Rantizo has done uh, at this point? So for forty to $50,000, I think is what I understood, you can get this mixed trailer, spray trailer. Uh, it comes with a drone. You can run a fleet of drones, right? So they have a technology where you can put two or three drones to work in a field together, and they're getting real acres out of these things. So the reason I bring up that example is think about this. Okay, so now I'm a young guy. I want to stay close to the farm. I know it's going to take a while before I get the reins. Um, if I want to get into the spraying business, it's not a 800000 to a million-dollar investment, right? which is what it would be today. You go buy a self-propelled sprayer, sprayer and something to tender it. Very expensive. What Rantizo and others are doing is now for, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, I can be in the spraying business and providing a unique service. And um, I think that's just scratching the surface of how technology will change agriculture and make more opportunities for young people coming back. Mm-hmm. What else was uh, up at InfoAg that was uh, interesting, technology-wise, newer companies? You know, so there's a lot of uh, equipment automation in general, right? And I think um, those are the things that we'll see in the very near future is more autonomous machinery um, out in the field, driverless machines. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of focus on that. And then... You know, just the services space in general and, you know, driving at efficiency and quality of life. Um, you know, I, that's what I appreciate about, like, InfoEgg and some of these shows and a chance to get together with our peers every year is to see kind of what's coming, right? Um, mm-hmm. Of course, like, sustainability was a, a big uh, point of focus there as well, right? There's a lot of talk around carbon markets and, and those things. So those are some of the highlights. Mm-hmm. Who's all who who's always dealing with the carbon markets up there? Was anybody dealing with that on that front, or is it more is that more of a precision precision and data more companies? It is. It's precision and and data. You know, and it's it's interesting. So carbon markets aren't new. Right. One of my roles at uh, one of the last things I did while at Bayer, I was in stakeholder affairs. And that's when this whole sustainability space was kind of heating up. Right. And um, Mm -hmm. so I was able to represent Bayer with some of the other major food manufacturers and 
some of these NGO organizations. And, you know, what, what's interesting is I think somebody's going to have to define, you know, what's necessary. I think it's interesting. I, I think, uh, of course, I want to leave the world a better place for my kids. I think everybody, everybody does. And, I, you know, I want a, a healthy, healthy environment and all those things. I just um, sometimes I don't know if we're focusing all the energy in the right places. Jordan, when I was growing up, it was reduce, reuse, recycle, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, something I think to keep an eye on right now is this carbon market thing. We do very little pointing at, you know, cars and, you know, burning fossil fuels and all this. And instead, you know, agriculture is taking a lot of heat on this. And, and farmers are some of the most responsible, resourceful people that I know, Right. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if if all the attention is focused in the right direction or not. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So I wanted to one one thing I wanted to talk about is um, I guess your transition. Um, I guess farmers farmers co-op wasn't the time wasn't necessarily a small company by any means, but um, I mean you worked with these smaller grain facilities like farmers co-op or a uh, Wood Valley Grain, they're five or six years out of school, and then you uh, jump straight into working with Monsanto, and it seems like you've been with some bigger companies since. Um, what what was that transition like, and I guess what were some of the biggest adjustments you had to make? I'd imagine they they operate on a little different levels. <laughs> it, it was a massive adjustment. So you know, I alluded in the introduction, I talked about being you know a little bit sheltered. Um, even at my time at Iowa State studying agronomy, I, uh, the first time I ever got on a plane in my life was uh, right after school, after I got into retail agronomy. It was uh, one of the Monsanto jets, actually, and this is when they were doing the fly-ins, right? And mm-hmm. kind of exposing farmers and, and retailers in the whole world to this technology that they were developing and their breeding program and the germplasm they had put together and and um, so that was my first time ever uh, on a plane. And what's interesting about that, so as I think back on it, um, you know, I was indoctrinated coming out of Iowa State even, and this was 2002, that Monsanto was a bad company. And it was bad for farmers, right? So even when I had yeah. this opportunity to fly down, I went down with the opinion that this is a bad company. I can't wait to see how bad they are firsthand, Right. And yep. um, so it was a it was a huge shift in mindset in that single visit uh, for me. You know, I got uh, they were really good about having the key scientists show you around and and what they're working on and why it was important. And you could really, for me, I could see how focused they were on agriculture, right? And um, if we don't miss Monsanto yet as an ag community, I think we will right not to not to put any of the rest of them down but it was kind of a unique thing this business was just a 100% focused on agriculture and mm-hmm. I, and i think we're missing some of that today but so um getting back to your original question you know the change at that time so when i joined on with monsanto um you know i think the company was you know 20,000 plus people so yeah it was a it was a huge adjustment um, for me and just a mindset shift and learning to work with people, right? Mm-hmm. I think uh, in agriculture, a lot of times we're, we have the luxury of sheltering ourselves from, you know, making big decisions with a lot of people and trying to influence. And yep. uh, I think, you know, that was a, something I had to learn pretty quickly uh, and probably probably took me longer than <laughs> it should have too, but you know, so I thought Monsanto was a big company at 20,000, and then it grew a little bit, right? The Climate Corp uh, acquisition, and it was growing a little bit. And then, of course, after the Bayer acquisition, I think the total Bayer organization was something like a 160,000 people. And um, so, again, that was a it, kind of level set again. Now you've got much bigger groups to work with a much broader audience to try to influence. You talked about trying to influence grandpa or dad on the farm. That's tough. 
now try mm-hmm. to influence six layers of management to do anything, <laughs> you know. So it was mm-hmm. – um, so I kind of saw that change, right, uh, even from Monsanto to Bayer. And then, um, you know, uh, again, kind of an unexpected um, opportunity was the time I spent most recently with IBM. And most people don't realize that they own the weather company. Um, so it's a, the Weather Channel data. They have uh, the most – uh, the best coverage and weather data, most accurate weather data uh, in the world, really. And, and a lot of people don't, and I didn't at the time. IBM, uh, when I joined, was 440,000 people. So Jeez. It's, not, it's not the old hardware company that everybody thinks of. Um, it, it's a monster uh, organization, right? And, mm-hmm. again, like the size of the deals and who you're working with changes dramatically. Uh, when you get into an organization like that. But still, even in that role, you know, I was closely tied to agriculture yet, uh, subject matter expert, you know. Um, But getting to work with a lot of the the big corporations that I had done business with in my time farming, right? So now it wasn't just understanding, you know, um, how a Monsanto or Bayer or Climate Corp operates, but getting a more broad picture of the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I guess bouncing off that a little bit is I mean what what's the main I guess what's the main thing that sets them apart on these smaller companies you're with and the bigger companies? Um um what and this applies to anything. I mean this can apply to a small seed company to a big seed company, chemicals or whatever, I'm sure. But I, Obviously, and you mentioned the layers, which the smaller companies are able to move faster than some of these bigger companies just because of all the layers they got to go through, which is an advantage, I think. But I guess what, what, what really set Monsanto, Bayer, and all them apart to taking those companies to scale? And why did, like, Farmers Co-op or um, some of the smaller companies you worked with why do you think it was different with them? Why why couldn't they take it to scale? What did they just simply not want to, or was Monsanto and them doing something just way different that you noticed? It's a good. We always appreciate those things more, like after the times passed, right? Um, mm-hmm. So w- when you're there working for Monsanto for you know I think it was overall like eleven eleven twelve years that I ended up spending with that organization. Um, you know, it uh, one one thing that I look back now and I appreciate is how well organized that business was for being twenty thousand people and how everybody was working on the same mission. Like I, I really think at that time, anybody from the janitor all the way up to the CEO could tell you what we were doing and um, and what was important and, and what we had to do this year and what was in the pipeline and you know. So looking back again, uh, what an amazing thing that I probably didn't appreciate enough at the time. I think as you get into larger organizations and more people, you have to influence more people to get an outcome, but you also have a hard time focusing on what's important, right? So when I look at what I'm doing with Solymptech now um, and the amount of focus we can have, it's not only like focus and pushing the right priorities forward, but just in general, fixing real problems. There's not an alternative agenda here at Solemtech. It's an autonomous business. It's been around for 15 years, and we really serve no other master than, you know, investors and revenue, and we're autonomous from big corporations investing in the business, right? So we can just really focus at what's important, um, partner, uh, closely with, you know, the the businesses that we choose and focus on the problems we want to solve. Really tough to do that at, you know, a Bayer. Um, to, to do it, they have the resources, they have the dollars to do it, right? But to get that focus and get momentum behind a project, um, you know, and real change in the business at a major corporation, mm-hmm. very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. So how how did they keep everyone... I guess, what were they doing, like you said, all the way up from the CEO all the way down to the janitor? They knew what they were doing, but how did they uh, 
I guess how do they keep that mission intact with everybody? Do you guys have like just tons of events or I've, I've never worked in a big company like that. And I guess none of my family has either. So. Gotcha. I see where you're coming from. Um, I don't know if it's really the, the events it is, um, leadership is so important, Jordan, and you probably see it regardless of the size of the business, leadership is important. And I think that organization had some of the best leaders around in, uh, Hugh Grant, uh, Rob Fraley on the science side, you know, Sam Effington and others. And, um, they were able to narrate what we were trying to do in a way that's easy enough for everybody to digest, right? Not that every, not that the janitor knew every last detail or that I knew every last detail, um, but it's not, I don't think it's the frequency and intensity of meetings. It's just the, to be able to communicate clearly what you're trying to do is the most important thing and mm-hmm. have it be a Simplifying mission everybody it. can get behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, simplifying it down to easier terms everyone can understand. Hard to <laughs> so no, I much, wouldn't uh, recommend that the Van Trump organization starts having week-long meetings with the organization. <laughs> exactly. I, I hear you. <laughs> and just tortured yourself with one session after another. Uh, uh-huh. So many jokes. At one of our national meetings one time, that was, uh, I can't remember if it was Monsanto or, or Bayer, they said if the doctor ever gives me a week to live, I'm going to go to our national meeting because it's the longest week of my life, <laughs> you know, and it's, there's a lot of truth to that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, uh, I'm going to jump into something or we're going to jump into what you're doing now with Solon for Tech, but uh, I want to ask you one last question. What, I guess, uh, out of all the companies you work with in the past, I guess, what is the best piece of advice you uh, received along the way that you still apply today? I think it's, um, regardless of the size of the organization, really understand who you're working for and what motivates them, right? So it's important to be able to understand what the organization is trying to do. Make sure it aligns with your own values, right? Like from an ethics perspective, I could never do anything that I can't put my shoulder behind. Um, so, so make sure the business in general aligns with your value set and it's something you're, you're happy to represent. And more importantly, those people that you're going to work closely with, make sure they're, you know, uh, in the same camp too, or at least have a, a similar set of uh, ethics and values and, you know, the same kind of focus you do in your own mission. And that's, yeah, that is what brought me here to Solentech. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about, so it's pronounced Sol- Solentech. How's it pronounced? It's kind of weird. Solentech. So here's it. So it's uh, it's actually it's it's three words put together, Jordan. So it's solutions, information, and technology. Okay, but that that, that f that f in the middle. Yeah, I kind of assumed too. Like when I was first introduced, that it was a Brazilian word or Portuguese or something from uh, Cuba. But no, that's it's just a combination of those three words. So Solentech. So Lynch Tech, there we go, perfect. Yeah, that kind of that F swirled me up there a little bit for a while, and that's how a lot of other people say it. But I'm like, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. But I guess <laughs> no. uh, let's just share with our listeners what exactly you guys are doing. Um, you guys are pretty new to the U.S. You've uh, been down in South America for a while now, and um, I guess just share with us what exactly how the company got started and what you guys are all doing now. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting story. Slimtech is not a startup, right? We've been around for 15 years, just the the past uh, couple here in the U.S. Um, the founders of Slimtech are still very active in the business. A couple of them are here in the U.S., and I work with them on a regular basis. But um, so these founders came from Cuba. They were Cuban scientists. They went to Brazil to automate sugarcane plants, like processing facilities. And once they finished up automating, the idea was to drive efficiency, right? And um, once they automated those plants, it was clear the issue wasn't how the plant was running itself. It was the harvest flow coming in from the field. So it was coordinating the harvest uh, harvesters themselves, uh, the trucks in the field, when they were going to dump, 
and all of these things. So the company really evolved into um, one that understands logistics really well, and logistics is at the core of our business. And um, so in, in Brazil today, I think we're over 90% of the sugarcane uh, market with our solution. We've made a huge dent in uh, row crops there as well. And we're really the biggest digital platform in South America. So um, that being said, the decision was made to uh, move to the U.S., still focus on logistics and partnering uh, closely with businesses to solve problems, starting with the problem first. And so, um, you know, some of those early partnerships led to agronomy uh, solutions that were focused on organizing the tasks that is application, whether it's, you know, spraying pesticides or applying fertilizer, aligning that with weather conditions, but Jordan, you know, too, the whole farming process is so operational, right? So to ignore it in decision-making, you know, uh, that's, that's why we struggle to model in those things with some of our other platforms because we try to ignore the operational thing because it's so complicated. That's where Slimtech starts is let's organize all these tasks. We have all these different people. We'll have seven or eight people involved in a single spray application, right? Let's get them all on the same page. Let's get them spraying at the right time so we get better efficacy and, and higher yields and, you know, fewer drift complaints and all those things. And um, so that was the initial effort that Salumtech engaged in. So, and then since then, uh, so before I had started here back in March, um, these same businesses that we're partnering with, right, they're, they're retailers and uh, independent service providers, and most of them mm -hmm. cross over into the grain business as well, right? So just like my background where I started as a sales agronomist and it ended up, you know, the next move was a, a merchandising management position, these businesses are run that way as well. So they, ha they have a grain arm. They saw what we could do in agronomy, and they asked for, you know, they wanted to partner again on grain solutions. Mm-hmm. So I guess to help people, do you guys have? So do you guys have any competitors, or have you kind of like created your own space? Is there? You, I'm guessing you guys are probably the first to do this. Is there any other companies doing this now? Or you know, there's some. If you wanted to, um, if you wanted to boil it down to just a dispatch type solution, there's other solutions for that, right? But we're we go beyond that with the optimization that we do. So we use AI in our scheduling. That's how I actually got to know Salem Tech was in my work with the weather company. We were talking weather data and how they integrated it into the agronomy platform to make better recommendations, you know, um, inversion risk on dicamba, for example, or what's the right combination of temperature and humidity to make glyphosate work the best, right? So. Mm -hmm. uh, everything was very um, weather weather driven. So uh, a complete solution like ours, no, we we are um, unique in the marketplace. And um, I, to be honest with you, I I don't know how many the major manufacturers. I don't know if they'll come after this space or not. Uh, doing mm -hmm. these things is not going to help you sell more equipment, right? It's all about better service at the end of the day and driving efficiency and, and happier farmer customers, right? So just thinking about, yeah. you know, um, what your agenda would have to be, you know, so if I'm a, a machine manufacturer, driving efficiency and sprayer operation is going to limit the number of sprayers I'm going to sell, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't see them going after this space. Um, you know, and again, I think that's part of what, that's why I was excited to join at their autonomy we can do the right thing, you know, and help these businesses out. In, in all fairness, you know, we're not working directly with the farmer today, but these are farmer-owned businesses for the most part, right? There's a yeah. few independent service providers. These are the businesses that are closest to the farmers. Uh, a lot of them are, have a farmer board, and uh, so yeah. that's where we really focus our attention is at the farmer and at the service provider. And we don't see the grain businesses really any different than that, Jordan. So we're, you know, we're thinking about basis traders 
in country elevators. Um, we're not necessarily concerned with the major traders and helping them develop, you know, uh, transparency tools and trading tools, right? They've got the resources mm -hmm. to, to do that um, on yeah. their end. We do, we do see an opportunity with these country elevators. They're, they're getting, they're big these days. You know, it's not the four location company that I work for. It's, it's hard to go to a co-op in, in Iowa where they don't, you know, even at a few locations, right? They might have a half a dozen, ten locations, and they're they're trading 150 million bushels. You know, these are mm -hmm. these are big organizations now. Um, you know, and they're they're basis traders, and that's what we're helping them focus on is basis opportunity and logistics. So that the natural thing for us. Um, was to solve the logistics problem first. That's the first product we pushed out uh, here in July. Was a tool that allows you to allocate out loads, organize freight um, from contract, you know, uh, integrated systems. Um, and they're time-consuming, difficult activities. You know, we were joking a little before the call started about you know, um, letting your position expire and the potential for delivery. There's a lot of mm -hmm. risk in basis trading and deliveries too, right? And yeah. um, for most rate companies, it's not their first choice is to go haul grain for the co-op, right? But they all they mm -hmm. all want to do it. It fills a gap for them. It helps keep people busy. But it's hard to stay organized when you're trying to ship a million bushels to a ethanol plant in one month out of four locations, keeping all those tasks organized, right? So our platform, just yeah. in the, the simplest explanation, is aimed at doing that, help them organize these tasks, understand progress against it. The truckers have an app, um, so whether they're internal or third-party trucks, they can see the jobs uh, that are available. They take pictures of scale tickets on both ends. OCR reads them, pushes it back into the system, updates contract totals, uh, helps you understand progress against those loads. And then um, even most recently, we've uh, – so we keep building this platform out because there's massive opportunity in bulk logistics and agriculture because that's so much of what we do. And, uh, you know, so recently we've just introduced into the platform the ability to invoice as well or create invoices. Um, for those third-party carriers. You know, when I was in the business 15 years ago, and it hasn't changed much now, you know, these truckers, that's torture for them. They're working hard all week, and uh, it might be a month before they grab all the tickets rolling around on the floor, bundle them together, and send it in as an invoice. Now when they're on the platform, you know, everything's transactional. It's all handled in the app anyways, so it's easy to create an invoice and get paid on it too. So that's kind of been our mm -hmm. first focus. Cool. Yeah, two questions I got on my end. So you're you're wanting to do, just for our listeners' sake, I think I understand the company, but you're wanting to do uh you're wanting to work with more of the facilities and elevators more than the actual producer itself. Right? That that is our focus. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's our that's our focus. Again, on the the agronomy application solution that we have, it's focused on service providers, those closest to the farmers. And again, mm -hmm. they're, they're really the ones that came to us on the grain, grain side and said, hey, we like what you're doing. Um, in agronomy, we like working with Salump Tech. I think it's something that's unique about our business. So we're not small, right, but we're, we're not big either. We're 700 employees total. Um, the vast majority of those people are developers. And... Um, so when we're building um, and working with these partners, they give us feedback, and they might see it in the product in the next day or two, right? Where mm -hmm. some of these, you know, bigger software companies uh, focused on SaaS solutions are just doing broad things. They won't customize at all, right? So, yeah, yeah. We are, we're focused on really the country elevator network. Again, they're not small business, Um but we're focused on kind of that same group that we partnered with on the agronomy side. Mm -hmm. And the next question I had was on the platform itself. Is it, so it's strictly a mobile app, or is there a website, or how, how to, exactly does the uh, platform work itself? Yep, so we have a, uh, a web app, and that's where a lot of the um, freight management logistics uh, are happening right now. 
So that's the, they're integrated with uh, the ERP systems of our users. Um, you know, both on information coming in and going back to the ERP. So your merchandiser, your dispatcher, sometimes those are the same people, right? When I was a merchandiser and a, and a manager at four location company, I did most of the dispatch as well, <laughs> you know? So, and we still find that out there. So a lot of times those are the same people. So there's a web interface. We have two mobile app, or we have one mobile application for freight in iOS and uh, Android platforms, and that's really for the uh, carriers and their drivers can utilize that. So even if I'm the, the manager at a carrier company and I've got, you know, three drivers or 30 drivers working with me, I can see. So if you're the merchandiser, Jordan, and you send me a, you know, offer for 100,000 bushels, I can take those 100,000 bushels and break them out across my drivers. As soon as I do that, they see it show up in their app and they know what to do for the day, Right and you can allocate mm -hmm. those loads out. So on the mobile side, um, very carrier-focused with it. The web app is very much like merchandiser, uh, grain company employee-focused, and that's where we're currently building out uh, some basis trading tools in that same platform. It's, uh, it's amazing how grain trading, basis traders, everything's a spreadsheet activity still. Everybody's got one, and they've grown it into something that they like, but it's not very good in terms of transparency or graphical visualization, right? So um, part of what we're trying to do is map out basis opportunities. Uh, some, of these some of these country elevators are, are massive too, right? Uh, they, can, they can be as big as some of the biggest that we're working with are over 700 million bushels, right? And they have uh, multiple member companies and and those things. So for them, they might all be shipping to a common end user, right? But there might be, in a given state, there might be three or four different merchandisers selling to them at different levels, right, to the same processing facility. And mm -hmm. so using a tool like ours, um, you're mapping out freight, right, and that's connected to our logistics platform. We're pulling in rail rates, barge rates, you know, and really creating this for lack of a better description, like a basis fob heat map for our users. Um, and I could, I could see this growing into, uh, you know, where I was just focused on a given region in Iowa and trading just for my elevator uh, locations. If I have enough information, you might see cross-country trading from some of these smaller organizations like the, like the big boys do, right? Mm-hmm. So who, who are the biggest, I guess, who are the biggest, like, for example, who are some of the biggest companies you're working with and who are some of the smallest companies you're working with right now? Yeah, so, well, you know, um, size-wise, we don't really discriminate that way either. That's not our goal is to just work with the, the absolute biggest. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've got grain companies that are uh, 10 million bushels all the way up to, uh, like I said, 700 million bushels in a single organization, and there seems to be kind of the sweet spot today. It seems like there's a lot of, so if you really get into the heart of corn country, right, um, it's hard not to run into 100 million, 150 million uh, bushels at pretty much every every turn, and that's a function of all this additional yield that we've seen over time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like you guys have got a lot going on. And definitely changing the way logistics in general is happening in ag, similar to, I guess, what Amazon has done to the freight business on UPS, FedEx, and those kinds of things. But, I mean, we talk about fragmentation all the time, and I think we both know where there's fragmentation, there's opportunity. Um, I guess where's the where's some of the biggest upcoming opportunities in the ag space, um, I guess, what are your thoughts on the ag supply chain moving forward? And where, where do you see the space in the next 10 years? I mean, I get what we're doing now, but where do you see this space heading 10 years out from now? Yeah, I, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I think the future of agriculture in general is more services. Um, I think all this new technology that we're seeing, you know, uh, is going to change the way that we operate. We talked about Rantizo drones. 
you know, autonomous equipment, even small companies like Sabanto, Heg, and some of those, you know, automating fleets of uh, tractors. I think it's going to change who owns equipment, uh, how that equipment is scheduled, and then who provides those services. I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, we see a lot of loyalty to a given tractor brand today, for example, right? Uh, no doubt there's a, a lot of loyalty to paint color and what your grandpa or your dad ran and some of those things. It's undeniable. I wonder how some of that will change, Jordan, as that machinery becomes autonomous. So now I'm not sitting in it anymore, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't have that pride associated with it. Um, and I think at the same time, some technology, so Rantizo is a good example of where some technology is getting um, less expensive. I also think, you know, some of this autonomous technology is going to make some machines more expensive. And the cost of not having the best technology is going to go up, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I just think from a services perspective, that leaves an opportunity for those wanting to get into agriculture or come back to the farm to help fill some of those voids, right? Who's going to help run the best technology on these operations and manage these fleets? We talked about the technology gap earlier. You were talking about, you know, and it's not unique to agriculture. Um, young people understand technology better and can implement it more easily in general. Mm -hmm. That's not always the case, mm -hmm. but in general. We've got an aging farming uh, population, and technology is changing things quickly. So I kind of bring it back full circle. I think that's bullish for young people wanting to come back to agriculture. You know, mm -hmm. um, if I'm talking to somebody just entering school now, my pitch is a little different. I'm probably not going to have them focus on agronomy, right? Um, to have, uh, think about how valuable an individual could be, Jordan, if you had a solid background in ag, you had some understanding of agronomy, you came from a farm, but you uh, understood code uh, or could code yourself or lead a development team, or product management, or, you know, be part of that technical solution on the farm, uh, that person's worth a lot of money, right, today. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a unicorn. It's a hard one to find. So I think yeah. um, those, are, those are the changes coming. And I'm, I'm bold. I think those are good things for agriculture. I, um, I don't think the best change will always be consolidation and vertical integration. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the way of the future. Yeah. After listening to you talk a little bit, I'm, I might have just came up with the next biggest disruptive idea. But do you uh, do you think maybe like 10, 20 years out? I just kind of this kind of just came to me listening to you. But um, there could be like almost like a kind of what Uber's trying to do with uh, going driverless. Just you own the car and then send your Uber out. And there's no drivers. Do you think we could move to that in the ag space with uh, with some of our equipment, they, it's kind of similar to like an Uber, and they just they just rent it out for the certain amount of time they need it. And yeah, and maybe 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 it even goes a little bit further than that, right? It's a little more special than Uber because I have to know a little bit more than just how to turn the steering wheel and mm -hmm. pick you up, right? So I think to some extent it can be that, but it's also kind of a specialist that comes along with the, uh, you know with the um, service itself, right? Yeah. And I think, I, I do, I think this space will continue to evolve. I think it's, I think it provides more opportunity. I think young people should be excited about agriculture. I don't think they should go study what I did or do what I did, <laughs> you know, focus on this technology space, stay close to agriculture. You have to understand the basics, right? And I think Solemptech's really good at that. They, um, we, we don't have a ton of people, but they hire people with experience that understand the space, and that's something you can't fake either. So, I'm, I, you know, any young listeners out there, I'm, I'm not saying um, abandon everything you know, <laughs> you know, and your love for the farm because that's not true. I just think in terms of education, we can shift our focus, and, and those uh, they can be set up for success in the future. Mm -hmm. So um, I, guess I wanted to ask one more question. So what are you guys as uh... – I guess what's your biggest obstacle in gaining market share with bringing on new clients right now? What do you, what, what, what wall do you guys running into? We, um, 
we had to pick almost the toughest customer in the whole business to work with, right? Farmers are master negotiators. They work four four months out of the year in the fields, and they're busy with – I'm not saying they only work four months out of the year, but they do spend about another eight months just negotiating, right, and they're masters at it. And so the uh, the group that we've chosen to work with, they they come from that same school, right? In a lot of cases, they're the same people. Um, and change isn't always easy in agriculture. Um, so I guess here, here's what I'd say, and I've seen uh, change adoption from a number of different seats, whether it's uh, Roundup Ready or Traits or, you know, various technologies. But um, I would I would say that, the biggest uh, risk is not implementing well with these groups, and that's something else that Salimtech does better than anybody I've ever seen. We have uh, of our staff, so a massive uh, amount of those people, 700 people are developers. There's a whole bunch of support people that go along with it, uh, customer success, and they just move in and live with these clients as they get them onboarded. And um, that's key to really delivering these solutions because – you know how it is. We've talked about this. You're going to have some that fight this technology, regardless of how good we might think it is, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's critical to partner closely with them, build what they want, but then help them implement well too. And if you ever lose sight of that implementation piece, you won't be successful. Mhm. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Definitely. Um, well, that's a, that's probably about all I had on my end, and you know, I think we covered a lot of turf today. Um, before we wrap things up, though, I guess I usually end with this question, but I'd love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on you. Well, um, you know, I don't know if this is common or not, and I don't hear myself saying it, it much either, but I just think it's relevant uh, to the, to the times it's, um, you know, make sure you understand the priorities in your life. Uh, everything for me these days, it's God first, my wife and uh, kids second and, uh, agriculture third. And I think if you, if you get your priorities, uh, understand what they are, the earlier you can do that in life, the better off you'll be, but, uh, don't, don't lose track of them regardless of the, the circumstances. Yeah, I definitely think that's some, uh, good advice. And I think a lot of people, lose track of that throughout life or from time to time, but find their way back. But I think that's always a constant reminder to have. So good deal. But yeah, we're, uh, we're excited to have you guys at FarmCon here in January and should be a good event. And, uh, I guess I'll get to meet you in person then. So no doubt. Yeah. It's been a couple of years since I've been there. I think the last time you had, uh, the iron cowboy there and it was a oh boy. fitting, Fitting timing for me, I was doing, uh, I was training for my first marathon when he was there, so that was a pretty cool thing for me. I, I won't ever forget it. So yeah, he makes he, everybody seem average, story. right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've been I've been right. trying to get myself just to do one Ironman or just to stay consistent, and I think it's always a good reminder after seeing him. It's like, okay, well, that guy just, he's like 10 Ironmans in, and he's still got 40 more. <laughs> it's like okay, unreal. we'll get up and do another Iron Man today. It's right. Like, um, well, I think what I'm doing, I, I can get it done. I think I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. It's crazy. Well, I just saw awesome. he did. Uh, I don't know if you follow him much. Um, I follow him a little bit now, but he just finished. He didn't do the 50 days, 50 states, or whatever. But he did 100 Iron Mans in 100 days. <laughs> I, yeah, I hadn't seen that update, but. I'm not, yeah, he I'm just not surprised. finished it this summer. If you have that mindset. What what I asked him after the conference, I bought a copy of his book, and this was something, you know, and I don't have the mind that he does. I don't. It was hard for me to get to that marathon. Um, you know, I asked him, I said, how do you know when enough is enough, right? Like when – that would be the hard thing. Once you run 50, 50 uh, Ironmans in, in 50 states, you know, how do you stop? And what you just said is evidence that he doesn't know how to stop, right? So, I think he's addicted. I think he's yeah. he's another he's another guy. But yeah, he he was right. like walking. He was finishing the last few days. I think he was having to do them with like walking sticks on the running part. So, that's oh my insane. gosh, dang, that's grinder right there. So, yeah, we right. should have some good speakers this year. Um, 
I think we have a uh, one of the old CEOs at Case coming in and talking. Um, trying to think of the guy's name. He does a lot on business. We got another guy. I can't think of all their names right now. We're doing. Um, he's a farmer. I just saw him speak somewhere, but he used to play in the NFL. Uh, he was actually like the highest paid center at one point in his career, and decided just to walk away and start farming. So he's got a pretty cool story. And then we're talking with, uh, we're trying to get Tim Grover booked. He's the, uh, I guess he's the psychology coach. He worked with Michael Jordan, um, Kobe Bryant. He does a lot with Russell Wilson. Uh, he just got done working with Giannis, and he won the uh, finals last year. So trying to get him booked, and I think he could bring a lot to the table too. So I guess kind of a sneak peek of what we got around the corner. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, you always have a great show. We're looking forward to it. Yep, yep, we appreciate you being a part of it, and I uh, appreciate your time doing this with me today. So I guess if there's anything on our end we can help um, help with, let us know, and I guess I'll see you in January. All right, this has been, been great. Again, really appreciate it. Thanks, Jordan. Yep, see you, my man. I'll talk to you. Bye.